welcome to Navarro Live. I'm Michael Walker and I'm joined by the other Mike, Mike Bancole. Mike, how are you doing? I'm very well, thanks, Michael. Hope you're well. I shouldn't really have called you the other Mike. Maybe I'm the other Mike. It seems slightly disrespectful in, in retrospect. <laughs> um, but I, I said it with the best of intentions is all I can say. Um, we have some big stories coming up on tonight's show. Um, north of Tyne Mayor Jamie Driscoll hits back at Labour's Rachel Reeves. Right-wingers um, have given some ridiculous takes on the heatwave currently ravaging Southern Europe. And we'll also be discussing the terrible state of renting in the UK. Um, I know this is not going to be news to you, but it's really bad. And we've got some more statistics to show you that show just quite how bad it is. Let's go to today's first story. In the early hours of this morning, Alison Rose, CEO of NatWest Group, resigned over the Nigel Farage bank account scandal. It came after she admitted earlier in the day to being the source that the BBC had based an accurate article on. That piece stated that Coots had closed Farage's bank account because he had dropped below the minimum financial threshold. It was co-written by the BBC's business editor, Simon Jack. The night before that article was published, Rose and Jack had both attended the same charity dinner. In her statement admitting to being the source of that piece, Alison Rose said this, I repeated what Mr. Farage had already stated, that the bank saw this as a commercial decision. I would like to emphasize that in responding to Mr. Jack's questions, I did not reveal any personal financial information about Mr. Farage. Put simply, I was wrong to respond to any question raised by the BBC about this case. I want to extend my sincere apologies to Mr. Farage for the personal hurt this has caused him and I have written to him today. Now, I don't think this has caused Mr. Farage much hurt. He has been absolutely loving this, uh, a moment in the limelight. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that cancelling his bank account was not the wrong thing to do. Now, it might have seemed um, inevitable, but Rose's resignation still came as a bit of a surprise, and that's because the bank's board publicly declared their, quote, full confidence in her just hours earlier. And the resignation appears to have followed an intervention from the government shortly after NatWest announced it had confidence in Rose. The Sun's political editor, Harry Cole, posted this. So he says, New Chancellor Jeremy Hunt is understood to have serious concerns about Dame Alison Rose's handling of the NatWest Coots Farage affair. That was quickly followed by this preview of the Times morning front page. Number 10 wants NatWest boss to quit over Farage. You can see that number 10 want this person to quit. With political pressure mounting on the bank, 39% of which is owned by the government, Sky City editor revealed this just after 11pm. The board of NatWest Group is meeting now to determine the future of Dame Alison Rose, its CEO, after she admitted disclosing inappropriate information to a BBC journalist. It's expected that she will step down, although no final decision has been taken more soon. Um, then at 1.30 a.m., which is always a sign that, you know, a, a business is organizing in a very professional way, sending out press releases at 1.30 a.m., um, the bank emailed this statement to journalists. The board and Alison Rose have agreed by mutual consent that she will step down as CEO of the NatWest Group. It is a sad moment. So clearly the board wanted to keep her. Um, politicians had a different idea um, and she has now gone. Um, that's a very significant scalp for Nigel Farage, but it does not seem as if he is done yet. Today, he called for the entire board of the bank to step down. He wants this story to keep going on. Um, here's Farage on GB News explaining why. I mean, none of this adds up. None of it makes any sense. But it was interesting, wasn't it, last night when she said, look, I did reveal he was a Coots customer, but I didn't discuss the details of his account. Well, contrast that uh, with what Deborah Turness, the CEO of BBC News, said. 
she said, not only did we get the original story from a trusted and senior source, but we went back the next day and double checked it. So it was pretty obvious last night that either the BBC weren't telling the truth or she wasn't telling the truth. And the board of NatWest endorsed her position. That's why I say they simply all have to go. The political consensus seems to be that Rose, in saying anything to a journalist about a private account, said too much. Rishi Sunak has reportedly sacked Rose from her job as advisor on his council for business. Speaking on Radio 5 Live this morning, this was Labour leader Keir Starmer. Oh, look, I think Nat West got this one wrong, and that's why Alison Rose uh, had to resign, really. Um, And, um, you know, I think that's fairly straightforward. Now, that was different to Labour's position yesterday. We're getting used to this. Um, Speaking to Channel 4 News before Rose's resignation, Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves said this. I don't like some of the, frankly, what I see as bullying attitudes towards her. Uh, She's the first female chief executive of NatWare. She took over at a time when that bank had real big problems. It seems to me that Alison Rose has done a good job turning that bank around, but I don't know the details of, of this specific case. Let me say this. If I was in the Treasury at the moment, rather than Jeremy Hunt and his Conservative ministers, I'd be spending my time this summer trying to ensure that families in Scarborough, like the ones I've spoken to today, are properly protected during this cost of living crisis rather than uh, picking a fight uh, with uh, banks on behalf of Nigel Farage. Um, That footage was released by Channel 4 News this afternoon. It was from a pre-recorded interview from yesterday and it seems like evidence of another Labour U-turn, although Rachel Reeves has since says, or at least her office has since claimed that it's not fair for that for that conclusion to be drawn because it was said before Alison Rose admitted she was Simon Jack's source. So at that point in time, Rachel Reeves didn't think Rose should resign, but we didn't know all the facts at that point in time. Um, everyone had suspected it was Alison Rose because of that meal with with um, the, the business editor at BBC News, but there we are. You can draw your own conclusions. Also taking a different angle on the resignation was chair of the Commons Business Select Committee and Labour MP Darren Jones writing in the mirror. He made an interesting argument about the case. Jones begins with this. Why did number 10 intervene on a consumer complaint between an individual and a bank? And why did the Treasury intervene on what appeared to be an individual breach of data protection and banking regulation? It's because the individual in question has power over the Conservative Party. But ordinary customers and workers like you and me don't. The government certainly appeared to encourage the sacking of Rose. And we should ask, why single her out for special attention? What about other CEOs who've behaved badly? Well, Joan's argument goes on to say this. What about the CEOs who have walked away with customers' money or pushed financial risk on the taxpayer, like the CEO of Avro Energy, who was never qualified to run an energy company, a company which went bust, the £700 million cost of corporate failure picked up by bill payers, a CEO who walked away with millions of pounds of customers' money with no consequence, or the former CEOs of Thames Water or the regulator Offwatt, who allowed £14 billion of debt to be put on this too-important-to-fail utility that only the taxpayer can save if it goes bust. And he goes on. What about the CEOs who use technology to oppress their workers? As I highlighted in cross-examination of senior executives at Amazon and the Royal Mail, any action from Downing Street? None. All the CEOs that aggressively used fire and rehire tactics, for example, at British Gas and now at Asda. Through our work on the business committee, ministers agreed to update the guidance on the use of fire and hire. But have they introduced the employment rights bill promised in the 2019 Conservative Manifesto? No. Have they improved the enforcement of labour laws in the UK? No. Even though they said they 
would. One response Jones received on Twitter when he made these points was that NatWest, unlike many of the companies listed, is part-owned by the government. That's a legacy of the post-financial crash bailout, and the taxpayer currently owns 39%. But Darren Jones makes the reasonable point that there are other publicly owned firms where CEOs have questions to answer. He writes this, We own 100% of the post office. Has Downing Street intervened on the CEO there, who has taken bonus payments based on false information in relation to the Horizon scandal? Of course not. The Horizon scandal, if you haven't heard about it, you really should look it up. Really, really appalling. Lots of people that worked in post offices around the the country, they had a, a computer system that didn't work properly, which made it look as if they were stealing money. They all got sent to prison for fraud when actually they were just using a computer system that didn't work. There was a terrible cover-up. Um, and Darren Jones is, is, is saying that there, you know, there, there wasn't proper justice for the people in charge of the company. Um, another decent point was made by Martin Lewis, who posted this on Twitter. A thought. UK banks deliberately, systematically missold by script over £40 billion of PPI, ripping money out of the hands of the public, including many vulnerable people. No bank CEO resigned. Let's hope the standards of accountability set today for bank C-level staff, um, C-level staff means a C-suite, so CEOs and um, CSOs, um, which post-2007 bailout must be seen as a public service as much as private companies, continues for all scandals going forward. So lots of people making the argument that yes, um, it does seem that Alison Rose had done something wrong. But the, the fact that the government decided that this was the time to get involved and say someone needs to lose their job um, sits in stark contrast to the many times they didn't do that when actually we might think the consequences were a little bit more stark than this one. Um, Mike, what's your take? Was it right for Alison Rose to be forced out of her job, I suppose, by the combined pressure of the media and the government? I think there's broad agreement that you know Rose has done something wrong and ultimately should have lost her job. My problem is, and I, I kind of agree with Darren Jones, is the lens of focus and also the fact that the government has chosen now to get involved. I think it's actually worth peeling things back a bit and, and remembering who Nigel Farage is. Nigel Farage is a man who wrote to notoriety and his political career is literally based on the fact that he hates migrants and he hates people from marginalized communities. Now, migrants, because of their insecure status, also haven't got access to key services like banks. That should be a major story, not Nigel Farage and, and what's happened with him. That's the major story that migrants, because of their insecure status, haven't got access to key services like banks. We can even think about the fact that British Muslims are the most likely to have their bank accounts closed. You know, these are some of the key issues. 1.2 million people in this country haven't got access to bank accounts. And these people tend to be some of the most marginalized members of society, you know, older, old, elderly members of society, you know, um, people who are disabled. You know, these are the key issues. And, and you know, as Darren, Darren Jones has mentioned, you know, the other incidences of CEOs behaving poorly that has never led to government intervention. So I feel like the focus this is this story has received and the fact that Conservative government and Labour, everyone's chipping in, it just feels bizarre. And I guess it's another example of the British press just completely focusing on the wrong issues. And, and it's real it's a real annoyance and a real bugbear of mind that we constantly focus for days and days on end back to front coverage of these stories that in the grand scheme of things, when you think about the other things that are going on, just aren't that important. I mean, what, what we are seeing, I mean, especially from the right-wing press, is this real backlash against corporations trying to be, I mean, for want of a better word, woke. I mean, so this is the words they would use. You know, these corporations want to be woke. They're, they're constantly putting, you know, pride flags out. I think Coots in central London has a big sort of pride flag logo. And the argument they're making is, look, this is, this is Coots trying to 
preach to the crowd and to say, look, we're so progressive. We're not going to let this reactionary racist guy bank with us. Um, do you think there's a danger of sort of like a, a broader backlash against anything like that? So, so obviously left-wing people often try to pressure businesses to, for example, or banks, for example, to sort of disinvest from the fossil fuel industry. And what lots of people are saying now, what lots of people on the right are saying, banks should just do business. Why are they getting involved in politics? We don't want to hear about their their views on LGBT um, or migration, for example. I mean, what do you make of that? I think ultimately what the government needs to realise is that these different institutions and society have their own value. So some of these banks might want to be pro-migrants, and that's absolutely fine. I think we, we, we risk entering a really weird space if we're telling banks what they can and can't stand for in terms of, okay, this bank can't be pro-racial justice, for example, because that would upset some people. I think ultimately the Conservatives have seen this story as the perfect chance to stoke a culture war because like, oh, look, Nigel Farage has been cancelled. This can't happen. This is all because of these woke loonies who want to cancel everyone and everything. So I feel like that's why the Conservatives have got involved. But I do think that they need to realise that, you know, whether it's a, an institution like a bank or, you know, other institutions, these institutions all have their own values. They, they swear by these values that they might hold sacrosanct. And the government shouldn't be the one to be the arbiters of that. Do you think they do hold these values sacrosanct, though? I suppose there is a bit of a danger here, isn't it, if, if, if the left end up sort of siding with the banks against regulation? Because, I mean, I, I think personally, you know, to, to regulate the banks in such a way as to say you have to provide banking services to people regardless of their beliefs is probably for the best because I don't really want my banking services to be dependent on my values aligning with those of a bank because I think I probably disagree with the bank on loads of stuff, right? So I think... I mean, I've I've been struggling with this sort of when I've been d debating this because on the one hand, I don't I I think absolutely it should be a tool available to people to basically put pressure on on a bank that you might use or to go to the shareholders meeting for example and say we want to change your corporate policy so that you don't invest in fossil fuels, right? But then or you don't invest in this or that that government which might do homophobic or discriminatory things. But at the same time, I I do think that probably we do need protections against them closing down people's banks, people's accounts arbitrarily. So I suppose I just, do you think it's a difficult tightrope to sort of balance on or am I overthinking it? I, I definitely think there is a balance in that here where I wouldn't want a bank to close down someone's account because of the views they hold. But I also do think that bank accounts or, or institutions should be allowed to hold particular views. Like you mentioned a point about do these hold these values of sacrosanct? Some might be performative and we know that in some cases, you know, allyship and support for particular causes can be quite flaky. But at the times when it's not, and when, when these institutions do generally hold these values, you know, they're kind of entitled to that. But again, I, I, it's, a, it's definitely a tightrope because I would stop short of excluding a particular person from a service because of their views. So it's definitely a tightrope. And it's, it's one of those issues I think is going to dominate a lot of our discussion in the months to come because culture wars and the kind of conservatives latching onto these stories is going to be a thing. No, I think that's that's interesting. I, I mean, I think what what is playing out in lots of institutions is that you have got socially liberal staff members, um, the, the more junior staff, but so all of these organizations, obviously, they try and recruit people straight out of university, people straight out of university because of how political polarization works in this country. Young people tend to be very socially liberal. Now, obviously, if you're a right winger, you're going to be decrying that. You're going to be saying because they all get completely uh, indoctrinated at university. I think it's more just because 
as time goes on, the next generation tends to be more liberal than the last. And um, it also so happens that we've currently got quite a, a left-wing younger generation, I think probably because they've been locked out of the property market, which is going to be a, a theme of our our next story. But I think you will see this across many institutions where you get a bit of a conflict between boomer customers and millennial Gen Z staff members and then businesses who, after all, are just trying to maximize their profits, are trying to, they're trying to walk this tightrope between attracting new young liberal graduates and not offending their boomer more socially conservative customers because in this country it's it's the, it's the young graduates who you want to employ but you want to sell to the richer boomers so i think there is going to be a conflict which we're going to see come up again and again and again in different institutions obviously america are far ahead of us um, in terms of this huge debate it's not something that we should be jealous of them for being ahead of. I hope we don't get to the stage that they are at. Um, but I think it probably, I think we will keep seeing stories such as this. Um, let's go to our next story on the theme of young people being left wing because they're locked out of the property market. If you are currently looking to rent a new home, look away now because this will not put you in a good mood. It's a chart from the BBC using Rightmove data, and it shows the average number of people that inquired for each rental property put on the market across three different years. Now, first, it shows you the situation in the Northwest. In that region, if you put a flat on the rental market in 2019, it would get an average of seven inquiries. So seven people sort of saying, I want to look around this house. That's now up to 30 so instead of competing with six other people, you're now competing with 29 if you're looking for a flat in the Northwest. Now, according to this data, that's the worst place to try and find a place to live in the UK right now. But it's also pretty bad in Scotland, um, where inquiries per property have gone from 8 to 27, and the Southwest, where inquiries have gone from 7 to 27. Across Britain, inquiries made per property have gone from 6 in 2019 to 20 this year. Now, this is bad on so many levels, right? The most obvious reason it's bad is because it's much more hard to find a home. Now, if you are you know, in between houses, if, you, if you've lost your tenancy, if your landlord has sold up, which is why many people have to move, and you are looking for a new flat, then if there are 30 people looking for each property, you're going to have to spend a lot longer looking than you would have done before. You're probably also going to have to accept a much worse property um, because there's going to be real high competition. Obviously, those are averages, right? So the, the number of people who want to look at a property which seems like it's a decent size at a decent price is going to be a lot more than that. So you're going to get a worse place. Um, the rent is going to be higher because obviously landlords are able to push up rent if there is a shortage of property compared to demand or relative to demand. And that's clearly the case here. I think also one of the things that I find you know, I think, to be honest, it's probably the price and the difficulty of finding them that are going to be the big issues that affect most people. But I think one of the, the darker elements of this and one that I find sort of the most morally repugnant is how much power this gives landlords. So if you are a, a landlord and there's six people looking at your property, right, you can't make them jump through too many hoops, right? Okay, you get a choice between six people. On average, you get a choice between six people. Um, so you might say, who's got the best job? Who's got this or that or that? If 30 people are looking at your property and you get to choose between 30 people, you can ask all sorts of bizarre questions. And we don't have particularly good laws around this. So when I was making my podcast about rent, for example, you've got people who feel like they've been racially discriminated against, people who've been asked about their sexuality, people who've been asked what their parents do, right? So you've got these landlords who are saying, I've got I can, I can do anything here. I've got so much leverage. I've got so much bargaining power. You basically enter into this sort of X factor situation where for the mere right to rent a property and give a landlord you know, 50% of your income every month, with no security, by the way, you have to prove you are 
the best person out of 30 different candidates to live in this property. It's like, you know, it's like you're going on, on The Apprentice just, just for the, the, the minimal right to have a home to live in. So I, I think that the amount of power this gives landlords vis-a-vis -vis tenants just makes my skin crawl, um, actually. Um, let's talk a bit about why it is so hard to find a property these days. Um, one reason is landlords are selling up. So I said landlords have lots of power vis-a-vis -vis renters, but still for some reason they want to sell their houses. Why are they doing that when they can have this much power? Well, a landlord gave this sub story to Newsnight this week. I think the upcoming abolition of Section 21 has encouraged some landlords to advance their plans. They've taken that decision to, to issue Section 21 notices now because they don't want to be left with just the Section 8 route. And he says more regulation is one of the factors driving landlords out of the market. With the increase in mortgage rates, a lot of landlords are looking to sell. Uh, we're working towards, uh, at some stage in the next four or five years, exiting the market completely. That process has probably been sped up as a result of changes to the um, legislation around the private renter sector in the last four or five years particularly. On a personal level, I've got seven properties I'm losing money on month by month. We've got some long-term tenants uh, and I want to look after them. It needs, no matter what rent I charge, it needs to be affordable for the people in the properties. It needs to be affordable for someone to move into the property, right? So lots of people now are moving out of their flat or or they're having to accept very high increases. For example, I did. I had to accept 15% last summer, 12.5% this summer. You'll know this if you watch this show regularly. It's the bugbear I'm always complaining about. Maybe you're sick of hearing me talk about my rent. But if you're not, I will do it some more. Um, that's, that's, where was I going with this? I got distracted by my own pet peeve. Um, what this landlord is saying essentially is that we've got too much regulation on us, so we're exiting the market. Now, the first thing I should say is I have no sympathy for any of these people. Landlords who say, oh, we've got too much regulation. Why, why can't we just evict our tenants whenever we want? Your tenant is paying your mortgage. Being a landlord is not a job. This is basically neo-feudalism. Terrible. At the same time, what he's saying is partly true. Um, landlords are just there because you know they, they want an easy income. If that income stops being quite as easy, they might sell up. Now, they sell up. Some renters might be able to buy some of those properties. Um, but it is the case that people who aren't renting, so homeowners, sort of, they under-occupy homes. So there'll be sort of two people in a house where if it was being rented, there might be four people. So one of the reasons we have a shortage in the private rental sector is because landlords are selling up. And one of the reasons they are selling up is because of regulation. Now, this is not an argument against regulation. This is an argument as to why we need a very holistic approach to housing which includes the government building lots and lots of social homes. Because if the government says, oh, we can't really do anything about the supplier housing, we can't build anymore, what we'll do is we'll do a bit of help to buy, we'll do a bit of regulation so people who are already renting have a few more rights. I want them to pass that regulation, by the way. I think it is worth the cost. But the costs are that it might be even harder to rent a home, and therefore we desperately, desperately, desperately need the government to start putting up some money so councils can build more social housing. I always talk about Vienna, 60% of people live in social housing, and they love it. The Economist's number one city to live in the world. Um, just a data point. So I've seen lots of people suspicious as to whether landlords are actually selling up. So some people are saying, look, this is just them flexing their muscles to avoid regulations. It's just a threat. They're not going to follow through on it. Um, there is, though, some pretty solid evidence that they are already selling up. So this is from an LSE report. Um, you can see here, this is measuring, which is basically a proxy for how many landlords are selling up. So the number of homes which are going up for sale each year that were previously um, listed to rent. So this is not homeowners selling their homes. This is landlords selling their, well, not their homes, but landlords selling the houses they own. In 2018, only 9% of houses sold 
were for rent were sold by landlords. Now 40% of all houses sold are sold by landlords. So you can see that landlords are exiting the market, um, which along with um, net migration, which probably will be putting some pressure on, on rent. Now this for me is not an argument against migration. Again, this is an argument for building many, many, many more social homes. So what do we want? We want a society which is rich, diverse, which has lots of migration, where we have a proper regulated private re rental sector. And what we need for that is a lot more goddamn homes. Mike Bangole, um, what's your take on this? Uh, I don't know your experience of the London housing market. And I suppose also, what solutions would you buy into? I guess the social home solution is a really, really important one. And I feel like, I don't know if you saw the stats earlier, Michael, but there's these stats that came out by the, the departments of leveling up and they released these stats that basically highlight that we have more children living in temporary accommodation and rates of homelessness has gone up. And I feel like this is all a combination of things, the lack of social housing available, these kind of crippling rental costs that you have spoken about so eloquently in the past, and also maybe the lack of kind of housing benefits um, to support those, you know, kind of the lower end of the of the kind of like uh, uh, wage uh, structure in, in Britain at the moment. So I think building social homes is really, really important. And also maybe rent caps would be really, really important so rents don't spiral out of control. And I think a third thing that needs to happen is we need to really rethink the right to buy scheme because what that did is that adds into the stock of social homes. So part of the reason we haven't got a lot of social homes available is because they've been bought out. And often these homes are now owned by landlords who rented them out for exorbitant kind of rent, rent prices. So I actually think that we need a complete rethink of how housing works in this country. Part of that is building new homes, but part of that is also abolishing schemes of the right to buy scheme. And protecting renters, you know, protecting renters against these kind of spiraling costs. Your landlords can't just kind of raise the, the cost of rent as and when they want to kind of arbitrarily because we, you know, renters are suffering. And I think it's important to focus on the kind of mental stress this, this can, can inflict on people. You know, looking for a home and, and, you know, struggling to look for a home or you know, living in temporary accommodation, being homeless. This is an unbelievable amount of stress we're placing on people in Britain. And I think it's an, it's an absolute farce. Let's go on to our next story. Regular Navarra viewers will have heard of Jamie Driscoll. He's the north of Tyne mayor who recently resigned from Labour after being blocked by the party from standing as the mayor of the North East. He's now standing as an independent in that race and he's already raised £120,000 to fund his campaign. Labour's Rachel Reeves is not impressed though. She told the local Chronicle this. It's up to Jamie Driscoll what he does, but he was ruled out of standing as the Labour candidate next year because Keir has taken an incredibly tough stance on anti-Semitism. He said it was the first commitment he made as the incoming leader of the Labour Party that it would tear anti-Semitism out by its roots. And, you know, Jamie Driscoll, against good advice, shared a platform with people who had been expelled from the Labour Party for anti-Semitism. And I'm not going to make any apologies for that tough stance on anti-Semitism. It is a deep shame and a deep stain on the Labour Party that when Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the party, that anti Semitism took hold. And so that's why Jamie Driscoll was barred from standing as a Labour candidate. Um, Jamie Driscoll has hit back. He told the paper this, Rachel Reeves has made herself look foolish here. Labour HQ or whoever is advising her has given her a hospital pass. The NEC panel that interviewed me categorically told me that there was no allegation of anti-Semitism against me. Ken Loach was not kicked out of the Labour Party for anti-Semitism. He is a highly respected British filmmaker who recently received a standing ovation at Cannes. His latest film, The Old Oak, set in the North East, was partially funded by the BBC. Um, he goes on, he recently got invited to meet the Pope in the Sistine Chapel. Is Rachel Reeves saying Pope Francis is anti-Semitic? Someone should ask her. 
The whole thing stinks of double standards. Keir Starmer appeared in the Ken Loach film McLibel and even used footage from this in his leadership campaign video. Ed Miliband recently interviewed Ken Loach on his podcast and talked about, guess what, films. Will they be forced to explain their actions and blocked from standing for public office? Now, one thing I would say, don't give Keir Starmer an excuse to sack Ed Miliband. He's the only person in the shadow cabinet who seems to have a modicum of interest in any kind of radical policy. Um, but I do see uh, where Jamie Driscoll is coming from on that point. I suppose, you know, to put forward the counter-argument, they'd say when those when, when Ed Miliband did that interview, Ken Loach hadn't been expelled. I obviously don't think Ken Loach should be expelled. And I also think it's stupid um, to be a political party where you can't stand as a mayor and interview a very highly respected film director who made a film in your region. That's completely ridiculous. Um, I think it looks bad on Labour. What's going to be really interesting here, actually, so this is, I mean, in a way, it's unfortunate. So it used to be the case that in regional mayoral elections, you would get to vote your first choice and your second choice. And what that meant is that you, you know, there was less risk of splitting the vote. So you could do it in in, in London, where I live, of course. If you, you really didn't want the Tory to get in and you, you didn't mind Sadiq Khan getting in, you could do Sadiq Khan second and the Greens first, for example. If the Greens weren't in the top two, then your vote would get redistributed and you, you you know that you'd be able to keep the Tories out that way. Now, if that was the case in 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 the Northeast, this would be a much simpler decision for for everyone to make because you can even put Jamie first and Labour second or vice versa and you know you're going to keep the Tories out. Quite possible um, that the vote would be split here and, and the Tories get through the middle. Now, if that were to happen, I would only blame the Labour Party. I think Jamie Driscoll has behaved kind of impeccably throughout most of this. Um, but there we are. Could be difficult. And um, Mike, do you think it was a um, mistake? Do you think Labour will be regretting blocking Jamie Driscoll? I suppose will they be regretting it? And was it a mistake? Are two different questions. Would they be regretting it? No, because this is a concerted effort to cripple a particular section of this party. And I feel like Labour are kind of treading a really fine line where it seems as though the line seems to be if you are left wing, you are predisposed to be anti-Semitic. And that's a dangerous line to to kind of draw. And that seems to be the line that they are drawing at the moment. So I feel like, you know, Driscoll's actually behaved really, really well. Like f- far better than others would have behaved, given circumstances and given what he's going through. I think he's been polite. I think he's been articulate. And I think he's actually been, you know, bit his tongue far more than others would. So I think he's exposed, he's exposed their double standards and their hypocrisy. But will Labour care about this? Probably not. I He's sort of he's the sort of person they want to offend at, at the moment. He's the sort of person they have very little regard for at the moment. So whether this will bother them or not is is not the question. I think the question is, given that, you know, as I've mentioned before in Navarra, we have this two-party system. Labour and the Conservatives have historically always been broad churches. Now that idea of a broad church, Labour being a broad church, is quite clearly under threat at this current moment in time because a particular section of the party are under attack. Now, we know Ken Loach was not suspended from the party for being an anti-Semite, yet this is apparently the, this is what Rachel Reeves said he, he, he had done. So again, Labour trying to draw this distinction of this is justifiable to attack this particular section of the party because they are all anti-Semites. It's a ridiculous position to hold as the Labour Party. And it's something that we should be concerned about because again, both major parties, whether it's a Conservative Party or the Labour Party, have to be broad churches. The left are important in the, in the Labour Party, as are the centre of the party. These two kind of sections of the party have always coexisted because we accept that both major parties are a broad church. So that's the threat here. We're attacking the kind of 
the values that we hold as sacrosanct in British politics, whereas, which means that both parties are poor churches. And that's a real problem for me. Next story. Nothing to see here. That's still the message from Britain's right-wingers as the Earth experiences its hottest temperatures on record. And some of these right-wingers are combining their summer holidays with some frontline reporting. Talk TV's Julia Hartley Brewer posted this video shot from her car. Now, captioning the clip, Hartley Brewer wrote, Here in Sicily, the wildfires have been tragic for the free who died and a pain for holidaymakers evacuated. But despite the UK media hysteria, Sicilians are taking the fires in their stride because they're used to them. Our drive past Catania yesterday. The wildfires are a part and parcel of summers for Sicily. Yes, 40 degrees temperatures for two weeks due to the Saharan heat wave have made the ground drier, but high winds and high temps plus poor land management inevitably lead to sporadic fires. The world is not on fire. Now, Julia's frontline reporting from her car might have given her the impression these fires are normal for Italians. I'm not really sure what she inferred that from, that other people were also driving down the road. Um, in any case, however, the country's civil protection minister disagrees. He wrote this on Facebook. We are experiencing in Italy one of the most complicated days in recent decades. Rainstorms, tornadoes and giant hail in the north, and scorching heat and devastating fires in the centre and south. The climate upheaval that has hit our country demands of us all a change of attitude. Um, now, that is not a message saying business as usual. He's saying we need a change of attitude because climate change is, is radically changing the challenges we are facing. Now, it's worth noting, Musumeci is, is not a bleeding heart liberal. Right, this is not the kind of person that Julie Hunter was. Oh, of course he's going on about climate change. Just some lefty lovey. No, um, he's presumably a very bad guy because he is a member um, of the Brothers of Italy, so Maloney's hard right party. Um, not a not a left wing guy. Presumably not a particularly nice guy. Julia also had her say on the wildfires in Greece. So she said this. There are forest fires in Greece every year, and the Greek police say these fires appear to be the result of arson. But yeah, you're the experts, Extinction Rebellion. Um, and she is, as you can see, um, this is aimed at Extinction Rebellion, who had been tweeting about climate change and sort of disagreeing with Julia Hartley Brewer, claiming it was just summer. Um, firefighters in Greece have suggested there are indications the wildfires were started by arsonists. But in using that as an argument against Extinction Rebellion, Hartley Brewer misses a key fact. No one has ever claimed that climate change starts fires, right? Arsonists might start fire. It might be, you know, accidents might start fire. What climate change does, though, is means they will spread further and faster than ever before. Now, this is an astute quote from Professor Stefan Durr. He is director of the Center for Wildlife Research at Swansea University. So he says this, any ignition can rapidly turn into a fast-moving wildfire. That could be faulty power lines, small intentional fires to burn debris getting out of control, sparks removing machinery or building activity or arson. Focusing mainly on ignition sources distracts from the main issues, which are more flammable landscapes due to insufficient management of vegetation and more extreme weather due to climate change. So Europe is suffering from more wildfires than usual, and the extent of those wildfires is largely due to climate change. So what will the right-wingers have up their sleeves next? Well, they do have something. We're told that, in fact, record-breaking heat waves aren't all that bad. I've got to say, uh, this whole heat wave, I was in Spain uh, very briefly last week, and yeah, it was quite warm, but I, you know, I don't mean to be funny, but that's what you go to Europe for. You want it to be quite hot, don't you? Or maybe I am missing something. 
She probably is missing something. Now, that was Michelle Chubri on GB News, a disclaimer. I go on her show um, fairly often. She's very personable in person. But everyone on that channel has an obsession with downplaying climate change. To respond concretely to her point on the holiday issue, I think most people can agree there's a difference between 30 degree temperatures by the beach, which might be quite nice, and 45 degree temperatures somewhere inland, right? Even 45 degree temperatures on the beach are not going to be pleasant, right? You, you don't want to be somewhere that is that hot. You want it to be hotter than here, but not that hot. Um, and it is those temperatures such as 45 degrees, the late 40s, which are what parts of Europe have contended with this week. Now, we should also remember, and this is probably more important, that the Mediterranean heat waves haven't just affected Europe. In Tunisia, temperatures have reached 49 degrees Celsius. And in neighboring Algeria, 34 people have been killed in wildfires so far. This report from the BBC showed how Algerians are responding to those wildfires. Flames licking at the treetops. A wall of fire quickly swells. It's a devastating scene. Villagers on the front line, armed only with branches and shovels. We have been fighting this fire for five days. There is no electricity, no water, no gas, no network. There is nothing here. We are tired. On the tarmac at Algiers airport, a lifeline. Two water-bombing planes chartered by the Algerian government from the EU, with another two arriving from France. But for those already firmly in the grip of this battle, government support seems non-existent. The people of Algeria are alone. We have received nothing from the government except threats. People are acting together as one, and we have received aid from everywhere. Now, of course, according to Julie Hartley Brewer, we should just keep calm and carry on. Fires happen, you know, whatever. The global consequences of these heat waves are going to make that pretty difficult, though, wherever you are. Consequences like this one posted by climate journalist Patrick Gailey. So he says, Jesus Christ, Southern Europe grain yields likely to be 60% lower than last year and 9.5% lower than the five-year average due to heat waves. The global food system will shatter how all systems do gradually and then all at once. Um, I think that's a really important point. And um, I think things you need to do when sort of discussing climate is is talk about how you know the, the people at the real sharp end of this aren't going to be in countries like the UK. They're going to be in places such as Algeria, places which are already quite hot and also don't have the resources to deal with the effects of climate change in the same way that richer countries in the global north will. Also, though, that even if you don't necessarily see all of the effects of, of climate change sort of very clearly in front of your eyes, you're still going to feel them and you can feel them I mean, in, in this example, by increased food production costs, right? Because if you're getting droughts, then that is going to affect the amount of grain you can produce, and that is going to increase the price of food. Now, as James Meadway always says, we have him on the show, he's always incredibly articulate. Um, he, he suggests, you know, this dichotomy that politicians always make between inflation as a priority and climate action as a priority is a false one, because one of the reasons why prices will continue to rise is because climate change makes the production of all sorts of things harder. Now, that's in part because, you know, you will get droughts and hot weather. It's also just because things become much less predictable. We know that extreme weather becomes more likely in climate change. So that means that even if we say, oh, okay, well, Northern Europe's hotter now, so that actually makes it easier to plant certain things. It might be harder to grow stuff in Italy, but it might be easier to grow stuff in Germany. Maybe in Italy, they can just plant different crops. There are things you can do to try and I suppose, adapt to changing climates. What is very, very difficult to adapt to, or at least to adapt to without incurring huge costs in the process, is just extreme weather that's very difficult to predict. 
So there, there is no way by which climate change at the scale we're already seeing is not going to affect us all. Mike, what have you made of this? Now, uh, when when climate change was discussed for a long time, you know, right-wingers would try and sort of say, oh, this is just bunk, you know, they, we're going to critique your models, et cetera, et cetera. Now we are seeing it, right? So earlier this month, there was a week whereby one day was the hottest day ever on average. That record was broken on the Tuesday and that record was broken again on the Thursday, right? And I don't think temperatures have fallen below that record breaking or fallen below the previous record since then. See, these, these are average global temperatures. Now, it's very, you know, the, the facts are in front of people's eyes and still you're saying, oh, this is, this is catastrophizing. We, we need to have some perspective. We need to calm down. I mean, what do you make of it? I think the kind of modern right and how they want to deal with the climate crisis is to minimize it and frame it as a liberal confection. So these liberals getting upset about just a bit of hot weather. I mean, who doesn't like sun in Spain, right? I think the problem is that presenting the abnormal as normal is, is undermining the kind of fight for climate justice. And, and I think this is a real threat that, you know, we on the left and people who care about the climate really need to deal with. The fact that there are going to be these dissenting voices. It wouldn't surprise me if someone like Nigel Farage, for example, entered this and became more vocal, critical of, you know, the fight for climate justice. But these dissenting voices who want to undermine the fight for climate justice and present it as some liberal confection, all of us getting upset over nothing. That's a real threat. And we've already seen both major parties dilute their you know, policies when it comes to climate justice. So Labour and this whole ULES fiasco, you know, following the the rice slip and, and the oxygen rice slip um, by-election, you know, that's not a good thing. And we we can't let the right, you know, and this idea that, you know, some members of the electricians are going to be upset by our climate policy. We can't let these things stop us from this really pressing issue. This is an issue that is ultimately a matter of life and death. For, you know, as you mentioned, people in the global south can be affected the most by this. Eventually, we're going to be affected in ways that are going to be, when we, event, we already are being affected in ways, but it's, it's going to get worse and worse for all of us. So we all, all of us across the world, there's real need for a collective effort to fight climate change. And I feel like these dissenting voices, the Julie Hartley Bruce of this world, the GB News gang, all of these people who want to minimize and play down the, the kind of climate crisis, they really risk, you know, this real important fights that we have on our hands as, as, a, as an entire planet. The entire planet is going to be engaged, needs to be engaged rather, in this fight for climate justice and this fight for a greener, more sustainable planet. I think mean, the real danger will be if that sort of politics infects the top of the Conservative Party. Now, obviously, we've got all sorts of critiques of the Conservative Party, and especially when it comes to green things, um, Sunak, pretty appalling, right? So uh, we've seen all these sorts of very high-profile people complain about Sunak not taking climate seriously. They're obviously responding to these heat waves by sort of suggesting they're going to drop climate pledges here, there and everywhere. What we still do have, though, is consensus across the main parties, and to be honest, across most of the establishment, that, and, and the public, in fact, um, that climate change is real, it's happening, it's very significant, it's very important. There's big consensus around things such as net zero, there's disagreement about how to get there. Um, some of that is honest disagreement, some of that is a disagreement which is based on defending vested interests of corporate power. Um, it's difficult sometimes to arbitrate between the two, but both of those things are going on. What we don't have, though, is a establishment force, really, which is just trying to you know, just throw shit at the whole conversation by saying, is it really climate change? Is it really a problem? da 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 da, da. Now, obviously, in America, they've got that because the Republican Party is full of people saying that, and Fox News backs it up, and there's sort of this 
this this this positive feedback loop between the two, which just gets more and more extreme, and it means that very very difficult to make any kind of long term policy here. Hopefully, and um, we can avoid that. But I think it's very likely that if Labour win the next election and Tories go into opposition, they will end up with a leader that you know at the very least flirts with climate scepticism. And if that's the case, obviously opposition parties get a lot of time in the news. You could have a much more sort of dangerous feedback between the Conservative Party and outlets like GB News when it comes to sowing climate doubt. Um, Mike, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Always a pleasure. And thank you everyone for watching. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.